Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. And we're into extra time! Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time. I'm Clay Wilson. 21 years after their first successful defence on home waters, Emirates Team New Zealand do it again in a new class of boat that proves Kiwis can fly. Sailing's most treasured prize, the America's Cup stays in New Zealand. Absolutely unreal and coming back to the chase boat and just seeing all the people involved in this campaign over three or so years, you know, how many Kiwis are out here supporting the, the event again. You know, we've had messages from everyone, from the Prime Minister to high school kids to you know, just about anyone you can think of of support, and it just means the world to us as a team. I would just want to congratulate first with Team New Zealand, obviously. They've done a fantastic job, but it's not finished, and uh, I'm sure uh, Mr Bertelli and Luna Rossa will try again. We have a lot of experience now, and thank you, Italia. Grazie, Italia, per il supporto. Grazie. Well, the America's Cup is finally done and dusted and Team New Zealand and Te Rehutai have successfully defended the old mug. On Extra Time this week, we analyse just why Team New Zealand was so good and where to now for the event. Joining me on the programme are Stuff's America's Cup reporter Todd Nile, Locker Room Suzanne McFadden and sailing journalist Sarah L. Before we jump into the discussion, here's a few thoughts from Luna Rossa co-helmsman Jimmy Spittle on why the Kiwis had the edge kind of felt like we were taking a knife to a gunfight. They did an incredible job with their boat, uh, the design engineering team, construction team, obviously the sailing team as well, but yeah, they, they were definitely had some speed to burn. You know, essentially for us to win races, we almost had to be perfect. And uh, you saw it in the results. I mean, any time we won a race, it was a pretty close margin. And when the Kiwis won races, there were bigger margins. Team New Zealand helmsman Peter Burling, meanwhile, believes there was no one thing that gave them the upper hand. It's an incredibly hard question to say what, what won you the, the event, you know, because there are so many different elements to it and so many people involved. Yeah, there's so many people within the design team, within the shore team, within the hydraulics, the electronics, sail loft, you know, that just have such critical roles throughout the whole place and, you know, that's actually getting everything to come together, you know, getting a boat that's fast, reliable and... You know, that the sailors can go out and, and use. And you know, then the sailing team has to go and sail well and get off the line, get on the right side of the breeze. So, yeah, to win a campaign like this is to really the culmination of hundreds of things coming together. So as Peter Burling touches on there, many, many things had to go right for them to defend the America's Cup. But let's dig into that a bit. Suzanne, what stands out to you about just why Team New Zealand and Te Ruhutai were simply too good for Luna Rossa? I think it was. It comes down to the technology of the boat, which uh, w- are things that we don't know about that we probably n- never will hear about. But uh, you know, they're an incredible uh, outfit. They're, they've got an amazing team culture. They built from 
Bermuda, you know, four years ago. They just carried on. And they had the advantage of, of building the boat, uh, designing the class of boat. They built it themselves. That was the first time they built it in-house. I think what we saw uh, in the early days was that they were rusty sailing, but they, they improved markedly with every race. And Lunarossa had probably uh, got to the point of the, you know where they were going to get to with this boat, but uh, Team New Zealand just kept increasing and overtook them with um, with their sailing skills eventually. Mm. In the end, we saw Team New Zealand did have the faster boat event. In the end, obviously, it was a, a pretty close start to the, the regatta, the cup match. But there perhaps wasn't as much in it as some predicted, and Lena Rossa also came into the regatta with a fair bit more racing under their belt. So... Todd, do you think the Italians could have done anything differently to make it closer, to make the result different at all? No, probably not. I mean, they admit to sailing mistakes, perhaps having cost them one or two races and perhaps there's something in there. But, uh, you know, I think that the point that Suzanne made is Team New Zealand, I don't understand the technology in detail, but Team New Zealand, both on the sailing side and on the technology side, is a unit that was in its second sort of potentially cup-winning campaign. They'd come through Bermuda, they'd had a technology and, and a sailing edge there. And, you know, when it came to the final, they were a team that were already had won, you know, that same unit and that same technology path already had one cup in the bag, mm. which is a pretty amazing platform to build on, whereas all, all, all the other three challenges, in effect, Ineos still had quite a lot of the Bermuda crew there, but American Magic and... And Luna Rossa were essentially new combinations. Yeah, starting afresh right yeah. now. Yeah. I was interested to hear Jimmy Spittle to say multiple times in many interviews, and I'm sure he probably said it to you guys as well, about bringing a knife to a gunfight, essentially inferring that Team New Zealand had a better boat. Um, Sarah, how much do you think the eventual difference was just the boat and how much was sailing? I mean, obviously it's a combination of both, but where do you think that lies? I think the interesting thing is I think we didn't even see the potential that boat had. You know, we had all the stuff in the media, everyone's talking up, oh, they're, you know, Team New Zealand are no good in the light. Well, they were on fire in the light. We saw that all the time. They constantly had better speed than the Italians. Imagine what would have happened if it blew. And, I, you know, I know I think Glenn Ashby said they were just, oh, or Dan Bernasconi said they were disappointed. They didn't get a chance to show what they had in more wind. I mean, that boat was fast. You know, when they first came out of the sheds, you can see very different hull shapes. We can see people had gone different directions. As Suzanne mentioned, we invented the class, so we had an advantage to start with. But we still had to choose, what do we think is the best way to design and build this boat? What do we think is the winning package here? Um, just to go back to that thing about the light, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, we've built a boat that's no good in the light. We live in Auckland, we sail in Auckland all the time. Why would we build a boat that was no good in the light <laughs> in March? You know, in March it's either, it's either quite light or it's blown too hard to race. So they would have known that. But I think we had a boat that probably had a lot of potential across the range. But um, So we had that speed, but we also had this technology advantage that everyone's alluded to. You know, We can see the hull shape, we can see the sail shapes, we can see the, how the boat is laid out, how we have different physical systems for driving the boat, where the grinders are, who crosses or whatever. But what we can't see is this technology and, and what's going on that's telling them the information. You know, we talked about um, you know, what the sailors are looking around, seeing, physically seeing the puffs. We don't have um, Ray Davies on the boat anymore. Do they have a, an AI version, a bot Ray Davies, who's on there that's processing Processing all that weather information in real time and literally telling them where to tack and jibe. I found that very interesting. I watched a lot of the international commentary feed and they had their 
chopper cams trying to really get in close and they were you know looking as they were in Bermuda looking at what Blair Tuke and Peter Burling and screens in front of them it is just fascinating where you know when you think back to 88 95 those early campaigns and where we've got to isn't it yeah, yeah. And, and Murray Ma- uh, sorry Murray Jones up the mast in 95 <laughs> looking, looking, looking for, the for wind yep. yeah. yeah I'd love to see the um Ray Davies bot that just yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I mean Dan Bernasconi earlier on talked about some of that stuff is, you know, the bits that you can see, the foils, you know, and the rudder and so on, that, that they're kind of set in concrete quite early on, but the great, the, you know, how it all works and the systems and, you know, and, and how you mix all the components together, that's, that's the secret and that's the bit we're probably never going to know. Mm. So, I mean, it's obviously, as we discussed, a new class, um, and when Team New Zealand did reveal the plans for this 75-foot foiling monohull, I mean, a few in the sailing world raised their eyebrows and thought it may not work. Are you guys convinced now? I mean, it sounds like this boat's going to stay. Are we convinced about it, and what do we make about the class? I think what we need to see now is some continuity. I think there's been a lot of chop and change. With the, with the International America's Cup class um, that came in in the, in the early 90s, we had those boats for so many iterations of the Cup that by the time I think that Alingi won the Cup, I think theirs was boat number 100. So there's a lot of development to be done, and this time we sort of saw everyone go, well, here's what we think this time. I think if we stick with that class, we'll see the boats become closer together or people will work out what things work and what didn't. I mean, there are some limitations on the class. I mean, we saw one of the biggest limitations, I think, is the way we're racing on the course. We're trying to make the event more exciting, more uh, spectator-friendly, do these shorter races, but we've put them in a rectangle, and so they're very restricted by these boundaries and therefore restricted by how they can pass and what manoeuvres they can do. Um, We saw how Jimmy Spittle controlled us by taking us up the boundary so we had to tack because manoeuvres are expensive. I think we should. I think there are some things that are problematic with the class, but we should probably stick with it for now. And I mean, it is a spectacle. I mean, they are. It's a beautiful thing. And what did Glenn Ashby said? You know, it's beautiful at rest and it's beautiful in anger. Yeah, the, con- the continuity is. If you think back to the old monohull class, um, you know, from one cup to the next, you know, the, the the good boats from the good teams went on to newcomers coming in as sort of early boats and training boats, which, you know, they were never going to be cup winning boats, but it got them together, it got them sailing in the build up rounds. And I think, you know, you probably need to build that up in the AC 75s. These boats can go on to teams coming in and wanting to get into any build up regattas. There'll probably be a huge leap in technology with the next generation. But, you know, I think you need to build up a, a family of these boats that, that people can move through. Um, I'm not sure what the TV ratings were like, but what's what do you guys feel about how big this event really was in New Zealand, how engaged the public were across the board with it? You go back to the old monohull days, which I actually quite liked, but, you know, the critics could say, oh, it's like watching paint dry, you know, because it's all moving so slow. looks like it a bit now, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, you don't hear that now. And just anecdotally, I mean, I don't think I'm giving away stuff secrets. I'm sure all media companies, the, the viewership and the audience has just went off the dial at the top end. But people who never showed an interest in America's Cup, you know, took one look at these boats you know, roaring along on a foil and a, and a rudder and were just captivated from that moment. So I don't think there's any doubt that the new formula has worked. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of overseas viewing as well, um, there were apparently 7 million Italians who tuned in for every day of the match. So for them to be able to see, 
you know, a, a live sporting event happening somewhere in the world and these, this beautiful backdrop of Auckland. I mean, we had stunning weather mm. through that entire America. Yeah, we might not have got all the that, wind we wanted, but we yeah, got the sunshine. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That was so weird. And, you know, for past America's Cup, we swear we lost so many days because of the weather. It served a different purpose as well this time. You know, it may not have been, we may not have had as many people coming down to the village every day, though. Todd and I sometimes struggled yeah. to find room to move. <laughs> but uh, it attracted a big overseas audience because it was a rare live sporting event this year. Of course, the, the, even though the racing's over, the intrigue very much continues. The focus is now shifting to what's next for Team New Zealand, the event itself. Um, there's obviously a fair bit to discuss in this area, but let's start with what's been the biggest talking point, and that's where the next event's going to be held. Um, Grant Dalton, the Team New Zealand boss, has said they do want to keep the event here, but obviously for financial reasons they're also looking into potentially taking the next defence offshore somewhere. Todd, I know you've been doing a lot of work on this, so where are we all at with it and where's sort of the next steps? There's a, there's a couple of parts to the puzzle that we don't know yet. One is that all the overseas bids are in. Team New Zealand actively went out and sought um, expressions of interest from potential hosts. The formal bids are in that closed on February the 28th. But the contract that Team New Zealand has with the government and the council gives them a 90-day period, an exclusive period in which to try and negotiate a deal for you know the next event. The other part of the puzzle is what kind of deal will they do with the new challenger of of record. I mean, there's rumours that there could be a deed of gift, which is like a one-on-one contest somewhere. But my understanding of the, the contractual side is that the government's right to that three months overrides any kind of venue for the next cup itself deal that might be done with a challenger of record. So there is quite, you know, there, there is quite a long way to go. And there's obviously, from the comments from the mayor and the minister, Stuart Nash, there's obviously a wee bit of almost narkiness that they're not going to have it like uh, it was in the old days. But there's co- some, some interesting commercial arguments from the Team New Zealand side about why they need to explore it this way. I heard Sir Stephen Tindall say yesterday, and he's, he's on the, on he's the chair. board, he's yeah. the chair of the board, that it's 50-50 whether it's going to stay mm. here. Um, Sarah, I mean, how likely do you, th- do you think it is? Do you think that's on the money? And how big a blow is it? if we do end up losing the hosting rights? Oh, it would be an absolute tragedy and we would lose all that um, that social capital that we've built up in it. And I, I think they will go to the ends of the earth to try and avoid that from happening. I think what's most likely to happen, I mean, we're, we're living in a very weird world at the moment where we're about the only place in the world you could have the America's Cup and we're all rah, rah, let's get vaccinated, get the world back to normal, but we don't really know what lies ahead of us. I think what's most likely to happen is that they will come up with some set of pre-regattas like we plan to happen this year, where the boats will be sent to other venues around the world where people will, uh, other entities will pay for the hosting rights to have an America's Cup, what well, they call them, event. There's a word for it, stages, or there's a, there was a word. Well, acts, acts, acts. Yeah. They'll have an oh, act, okay. you know, and so we might have one in China and we might have one in Dubai. But I think the America's Cup, you know, if we hold it, and, and bear in mind that Team New Zealand doesn't hold it, the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron holds it, you know, it sits there in my club and I go upstairs and give it away when I go sailing, <laughs> that, you know, it, it's held here. I heard Stuart, I think it was Stuart Nash say that they're not going to get into a, a bidding war. It might have been Phil Goff, I'm not sure, mm, Todd. Or um, both. Yeah, probably both. Um, and potentially we're not going to be, and when I say we, the government, Auckland Council, we're not going to be able to match financially big bids from overseas. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't come here, does it, Suzanne? I, I think it's fair to say that there's other things, a lot of other things in our favour 
um, Sarah was speaking there about just the, the beauty of it and, and mm. how great it is for racing it here. But there are things that are in our favour outside of just the financial clout, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And um, I would also be gutted if we lost it. But at the same time, I'd also understand why if it had to go. Um, you know, I've heard a few people saying, they sh- you know, our, our money, our taxpayers' money shouldn't be spent on this team and this event anymore. And, of course, if they do go, that is probably the end of any government funding for the team. Uh, I think, yeah, having it here, um, Dalton did an amazing thing by making it free-to-air and uh, creating a stadium course right in amongst, you know, Auckland. And so people didn't have to have a boat to go out and watch. They could sit on North Head or Auraki. Um, And... You know, there are those just special things that we've seen the America's Cup bring to Auckland or Auckland bring to the America's Cup. Mm. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of emotional um, pluses on Auckland's side. I've I've wondered whether part of the process in bringing in bids from overseas might be, and this is just me surmising whether Team New Zealand's also trying to lift the level of thinking uh, in the in the government or the council about what this is on a global scale and how it could be worked, you have to remember that the the relationship with MB, the, the ministry that was representing the government, just it's terminal, it's toxic, and I don't think Team New Zealand will go back into a discussion that involves them when you see how that turned out. So they may be trying to say, look, this is bigger than it's a big deal, yeah. the way it was being treated before. In terms of the British team being the challenger of record. They've obviously, this relationship has come, become reasonably cosy um, over the last however many months. What, have we, what do we make of them as, as challenges of, of record and what should we expect from them as challenges of record, perhaps? I, get, I mean, the fascinating thing with the challenge of record concept, I liken it to forming a coalition government. <laughs> you know, if you think the relationship with Prada and the Italians has built and was amicable and was wonderful for so many years and not long after they became challenger of record, things started to dissolve to the point where, you know, in the last week they were asserting their rights to challenge a record to editorial control of the broadcast because we're paying the money, so, you know, we want to have a say. Um, and the coalition government thing is, you know, on day one, everybody looks like they're like-minded and, and uh, are following one path, but the time, by the time you get to the end of the electoral cycle, it's everyone for themselves. So I, they probably are going to be a great challenger of record, but everyone will have their own agenda in that relationship. And you think about how much money Prada put into not only their team but the event. So um, I, I guess, you know, that's what we'll see from the British. You know, they've got incredible people. Sir Jim Radcliffe. Mm. We've seen, his boat. We've seen his boat out there on the golf. He's yeah, got exactly. So, well, you know, how will they, Team New Zealand manage that relationship this time when you've got one of the partners who's obviously going to put a lot of money in? Mm. You know how will they? Uh, how will that relationship pan out? When they you know need a good prenup. Yeah, <laughs> they, do. they do. Well, that sort of dovetails quite well with the last thing I want to touch on, um, and it's not just about, um, I guess, the, the boats and the technology, but it's also about the, the sailing talent. And you know, we speak about Pete Burling, Blair Tuke, um, but also the likes of Dan Berners-Coney, I think, you know, someone who's very, very valuable to that team. And one, they're just sort of three names of many who are talent that Team New Zealand are going to want to be retaining. Um, 
Can, can they afford to lose them? Do you think we'll lose them, Sarah? I mean, what are, where do you think that's going to go? No, we can't afford to lose them. I mean, we saw I, the, the thing that worries me at the moment now that adrenaline is wearing off is that it, it was at this point, you know, we've, had, we've won the America's Cup before, we've defended the America's Cup before, mm. and then, my God, did the wheels fall off, mm. yeah. you know? And it really, really turned to hell, and the next thing we saw, we were bailing our boat out with a bucket while it sank, you know? Yeah. So we need to be very careful to steer a clear course here. I mean, things are different. There is different management, but there may be. We may see some changes in management, but the, we, we need to retain, like I said, that brand, that, that Pete and Blair brand. We need to retain Glen Ashby. There are key people that we need to retain, the design team, the IP. We have all this IP that we need to retain, and it's all bound up with contracts and things, but people things get out and people get away and people get bitter and goes to court. You know, We need to retain that IP as much as we can. Um, so that's that's. I mean, that's where that initial money is going into. We need to retain those core people. And I was just listening on the radio on the way here. You know that I think it's a little bit different. I mean, obviously Russell Coates had that passion to stay in New Zealand as well. And then after that, we defended the cup in two thousand in two thousand. And Peter Black said, "Right, I'm out." And Russell took over, and he had the best will in the world. And it just it just went badly. I think that you know Pete and Blair have this passion and they want to sail for us. But things things could go wrong. We need to be very careful. Yeah. I was thinking it's it's one of the weird things. I mean, it's one of the many sort of strange and wonderful things about the Cup, isn't it, that when one event finishes, we sort of don't know what's going to happen with the next event, not yeah. just the event itself, but with the with the sailors. It's not like a Rugby World Cup, you know, those guys are, well, some of them go out of contract, but generally it's, it's, it's very strange, isn't it? So we're going to be in limbo for a, a little bit probably, aren't we? Yeah, I think we are. I, I think, you know, with Pete and Blair, I think we may see them step up their role in... Team New Zealand, or in, and if they are, you know, enticed to another team, but I think that will be part of it. Is that they've achieved already? You know, mm. they've won the cup twice. So what's next for them? They're two guys who love being involved, all in, in everything. You know, an Olympic campaign. They're off on the Sail GP circuit next. So they will be wanting to have something that challenges them, and I think that we may see them step up into new leadership roles. Finally this week, let's hear from New Zealand's latest sporting world champion. Literally and figuratively, 19-year-old snow sports star Nico Porteous is flying high right now. We all know the Wanaka teenager from the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea where he claimed bronze in the free ski halfpipe event to become the youngest Olympic medalist in New Zealand history. But in the past couple of months, he's added some other pretty big achievements to his resume. I caught up with Porteous this week and started by asking him how it felt to win an X Games gold medal, break his foot skateboarding and then come back just five weeks later to be crowned a world champion. It's been a crazy roller coaster of such high emotions and then also such deep lows. You know, X Games was like, words can't even describe it. It's always been a childhood dream of mine to win an X Games, and for it to happen was even more mind-blowing. And then two days later, break my foot <laughs> and had all of a sudden a lot of shame and embarrassment come over me as, you know, obviously we're over here with the support of High Performance Sport New Zealand and um, and the New Zealand government um, in terms of funding. And, and uh, I felt really ashamed and really embarrassed that I had let my team down uh, in the fact that I had gone off and caused an unnecessary risk on myself and, and injured myself and uh, put myself out for a certain period of time. Uh, luckily, that period of time was only planned to be training. So 
unfortunately I did miss out a lot of training, but I came back just in the nick of time and uh, then I guess the events happened the way they happened. You touched on it a bit there, but can you talk me through what was going through your mind? You had the accident, I'm assuming you went to the A&E clinic or the hospital and then they told you your foot was broken, you knew you had five weeks or so until the world champs. What was going through your head at that point? Yeah, I mean, I'd never really broken like a bone like that where it's really affected, like it's a weight-bearing bone. And so I didn't really know what to expect in terms of how long recovery was going to be and um, how well I'd heal because I just didn't know how I would heal under broken bones. And so to be honest, I was actually kind of doubting that I was going to make it to world champs. And luckily with the support of, um, you know, the trainers back home, with high performance sport and physios and physio clinic over here who was helping me out a lot, I um, made the recovery in time for world champs and, yeah, I was feeling a little bit painful, but, yeah, it was all good. So you said you were sitting at home for around a month. If my maths is correct, it wasn't until a week or perhaps two weeks before the world champs that you finally actually got back on your skis properly. Is that right? Oh, I got back on my skis uh, a day before world champs training started. It was very tight. And even on the first day of training, I had doubts that I wasn't going to be able to ski at the level I wanted to. But my foot hit the just on the four-week mark and and then days just went by and my foot was getting better and better and better and I was feeling better in my boot and then uh, the comp came around. So this combination that you've nailed in these last two events, these back-to-back 1620s, can you explain exactly what you're doing in that combination and how long did it take for you to master that and why is it so significant in your sport? So 1620s, two full flips, and four and a half full spins in one jump. And so as skiers, you know, you have a natural way of spinning, just like you have a natural way of writing your name. You know, you have a natural hand. And so um, it's exactly the same. So I naturally spin to the left, rotate to the left. And so as you can imagine, writing writing the hardest essay that you've ever written on your unnatural hand, that's kind of what it's like. So the back-to-back is spinning both ways. So it's like an ambidextrous trick almost. And the amount of time and effort that went into learning those tricks was kind of spread out over a a year and a half long period of just knuckling down and just, you know, the support of my coach, Tommy, and uh, the facilities we had at Cadrona this year. And yeah, allowed me to really progress and just train and train and train and it all paid off. So definitely makes it all worthwhile. And Winter Olympics, obviously, next year, have these two results in the last six weeks made you think at all about what might be possible in Beijing? Um, no, to be honest. Um, no, I, I haven't thought about it. It is a year away. Um, a year is a long time in our sport, especially at the rate of which it progresses. And so I haven't thought about it at all. Of course, one can dream, but I'm not going to put any pressure on myself or not have any expectations other than just getting my absolute best when it counts. Um, and yeah, that's all I can focus on. That's all I can control, you know. So um, I'm just going to knuckle down for the next year, keep working hard, and then yeah, see what happens. Hopefully, all goes well, but we'll see what happens. That was Kiwi free ski star Nico Porteous talking about a big six weeks where he's won an X Games gold medal, suffered a broken foot, and then bounced back to win a world title. And that brings us to the end of extra time. My thanks to Stuff's America's Cup reporter Todd Nile locker room Suzanne McFadden and sailing journalist Sarah L. Extra time is available every Friday from about 4pm. 
You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, iHeartRadio, and of course at rnz.co.nz. Give us a rating if you would. That helps a whole lot and means other listeners can find us much more easily. I'm Clay Wilson. Kakite anō. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.